Our second lesson comes to us from Luke's Gospel. This is from the 18th chapter, beginning with verse 9, and Jesus tells us a parable. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves and rogues and adulterers, or even like this tax collector standing over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all of my income. But the tax collector standing over there would not even look up to heaven but was beating his breast and saying, God, please be merciful to me, I am a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his home justified, rather than the other, the Pharisee, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And all that humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it begins with the contempt, doesn't it? The contempt. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who regarded others with contempt. It begins with the contempt, the contempt that another person is insignificant or worthless or deserving scorn. Contempt, regarding someone as inferior, being dishonored and disgraced and disrespected. The Pharisee, rather than being grateful for his blessings, is smug to the point of loathing. In his mind, there are two kinds of people, the righteous and the immoral, the virtuous and the corrupt. And he is thankful head to toe that he is righteous. The tax collector, on the other hand, is desperate. He's overwhelmed by his misery, and he divides humanity into the good and the awful. All he recognizes is his wretchedness, and he stakes his hopes entirely on God's mercy. John Calvin puts it this way, what makes our pleas and our prayers null and void is our contempt of others. And contempt 
contempt can seep out from all angles. At the neighbor who's not raking the piles of leaves into proper piles three feet from the curb. At the boss who can't seem to grasp our potential. At the ex who knows exactly how to sabotage a family gathering. At the coach who has it out for us. The sister who we haven't spoken to in three years. How luxurious it is to bathe in contempt, to swim in it, to soak in it. The problem comes when we're so seduced by our need to be right and someone else is wrong that our faith shrivels and our hearts wilt. Holding on to our disdain, as we learn today, is the single most act of detachment from our faith. Because rather than rejoicing in what God can make of us, we choose someone to hang out to dry. Our disdain is an attempt not to need God, because we think we have the power to be our own God. The Pharisee's prayer is not a petition to God, is it? It's a, a selfie posted on X, an upload to Snapchat, a post on Insta. It's in contrast, it is the tax collector that is in so deeply in need of God that his plea for mercy becomes an act of trust. But here's where we need to be careful. Here's where we need to be really careful. Before we turn this Pharisee and this, and this tax collector into biblical stock characters brought out today for a lesson in ethical behavior, you know, the self-righteous, rule-bound religious leader, lacking in compassion, compared to the repentant, meek, and simple tax collector, we need to be very shrewd, very careful. Because Luke, like he likes to do, and I really love this about him, <laughs> Luke likes to set a trap. Whenever a parable seems this clear-cut and straightforward, we better not go down that path. David Lowe's puts it this way. Careful listeners should realize that Luke is the master of reversals. Things never, ever, ever stay the same for long. Because first, there is this Pharisee. And truth be told, he only speaks the truth. He is righteous. And according to the law, he leads a blameless life. He fasts and he gives alms, and indeed, he bears no resemblance to the unsavory characters in which he compares himself. 
What then is his problem? It narrows down to one thing. While he is right about the kind of life that he should live, he's mistaken about the source of that life. While he prays to God, his prayer is about himself. And because he misses the source of his blessing, he despises those who God loves. He leaves the temple so righteous according to the law, but he's not justified. That is, he's not called righteous by God. And second is the tax collector. There's no note of repentance in the tax collector's prayer, no pledge that somehow he's going to leave this employment and seek a different vocation or render reimbursement to those he cheated, no promises of a new and better life, nothing. Except the simple acknowledgement that he is utterly and entirely dependent on God's mercy. The tax collector knows the one thing that the Pharisee does not, that his life belongs to God past, present, future, entirely dependent on the God of grace. But this is where the trap is set. The minute you decide to take this parable at heart and to be more humble like the tax collector, it's pretty hard not to also be grateful that you're not like the Pharisee. Truly, right? I want to be more like the tax collector. I don't want to be like the Pharisee. And then the trap is sprung because it's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about our humility or our lack of pride or even being the one justified by faith. It's not about us at all. It is about God, this parable, this beautiful small parable was and is a challenge to shift our attention from ourselves, our disdain and our self-effacement, our piety and our passions, our success and our failures, our glory and our shame, to shift it to where it has belonged all along, to the God who delights, delights in justifying the ungodly, welcoming the outcast, and healing each of us who are in need of healing. The God whose compassion rains upon us in showers of tenderness, Mercy, mercy saints alive. What good, good news, mercy. For all of her life, my Aunt Willie Hines used the phrase, 
Mercy Saints Alive. She was a woman raised in poverty. Our family were sharecroppers on a farm that didn't belong to us in Pickens, Mississippi. And the family paid rent by the crops they brought in, some corn and squash, all sorts of vegetables, paid us rent to be able to live in the house and farm the land. And so Willie Hines, who was supposed to have been a boy, so they, they still named her Willie, Willie Hines learned to sew and to cook and to plant beans and fish the creek and to pluck a chicken and to bake a biscuit. And when she was surprised at anything in her life, she would quietly say, Mercy, saints alive. And when she was overwhelmed, she would whisper almost, Mercy, saints alive. And when she was confused, she would say quietly in her own soft way, mercy, saints alive. Willie Hines was five foot one inch of quiet discretion. She blended into the background and you had to listen very carefully to hear what she said. She was shy, timid, the youngest of a bunch of kids, my grandmother being her sister. She was unsure of herself. The only thing she really was sure of in her life was being able to bake cornbread and chess pie in a wood-fed oven with no timer and no thermometer. But while Willie Hines was quiet and hesitant at home, on Sunday mornings at the Pickens Baptist Church, she was a wild woman. I kid you not. You may not have known where she was in the house, but when she was in church, you knew which pew, which aisle, and which seat she was in. Rather than responding in a modest voice to her pastors, can I get an amen? she would loudly declare, Jesus is my Lord, mercy, saints alive. <laughs> and instead of keeping a reserved profile during prayer, she'd speak out full throttled, mercy, saints alive, dear Jesus Christ, mercy. You might understand where I get some of my drama. that dramatic flair that seeps out at all times. On Sunday mornings, Willie Hines let herself loudly express a full throttle declaration of gratitude for her life. And that's what I wanna to shout to these two idiots in the parable. Mercy, saints alive, you two, get a grip. 
Lord, have mercy. One of you is too busy looking above yourself. The other is too busy burying your, your face in the sand. Mercy. One of you is so arrogant that you can't see beyond yourself, and the other can't see yourself at all. I mean, really. Mercy, saints alive. <laughs> One of you is a legend in their own mind, and the other can't fathom being more than a worm. Fools. Mercy, saints alive, you fools. Don't you know that before there was sin, there was love? And before there was contempt, there was joy? And before there was shame, there was grace? It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about God. And that's the best way, my friends, to receive this parable to put our hands on our hips. Mercy, saints, alive. Instead of looking up and being self-satisfied, instead of looking down and living in self-abasement, look straight ahead into the eyes of the one who loves you. Look straight into the eyes of the Lord because He's looking back at you. This Lord who forms and reforms you, this Lord who will never ever let you go, this Lord who pulls each one of us, all of us, the whole world, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the condescending and the ashamed, the arrogant and the unassuming, the holy rollers and the heretics, he pulls us right into the arms of mercy. Mercy, saints, alive.